We're in the victory lap, almost uh, having completed the last of Paul's epistles. In your Bible, the last epistle that we have printed is Philemon, or Philemon, or however you say Philemon. The last, it's the shortest, and it's like they took Paul's letters and put them in almost like order of descending number of verses or something. Not exactly, because 1 Corinthians is the longest by number of words, but... Um, but 2 Timothy chronologically was the last thing we have from Paul. It's his last word. Remember in the context as we get started to a man who is missing out. He's missing out because, as you read in 1 Timothy, he had a mission. He was an apostolic emissary named Timothy who was raised by Bible-believing Christian, Jewish Christian mother and grandmother who became believers apparently through the ministry of the Apostle Paul and his first missionary journey through Lystra and Derby, the Roman province of Galatia. And so the people that Paul writes the book of Galatians to are Timothy's people. And so Timothy is a product very much of the Apostle Paul's ministry. And in 1 Timothy, he was sent on mission to go settle things in Ephesus and to shut down false teaching and to teach the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy, Paul has to say things like, you need to rekindle the gift that you, we know you received. You need to get back to the work. You need to do what God has sent you to do. And we've seen several really important verses that we rightly have constructed our worldview and our philosophy of ministry on, like 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly handling or cutting straight the word of truth. Like uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God might be uh, equipped, adequately, adequately furnished for every good work. And now we're in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul is issuing his final ministry commands. And we're going to see six verses of Paul's final ministry commands, and I'll read it to you in my, or sorry, five verses, in my English translation here, uh, affectionately known as the New American Standard, 1995. By the way, if you're worried about English translations, I would challenge you to be more worried about Greek translation, going from the original that Paul wrote to English, which is what we're going to do after we read through this almost interlinear translation. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober, in all things endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And that, will, that little summary of what Timothy's mission is, it's a wonderful one-stop place for a pastor and by extension, for anyone who's making disciples, that better be all of us, to focus on where we get our information, what we're supposed to do with it, and how we relate to the culture. Listen to it. Where you get your information, what you're supposed to do with your information, and how you would relate to the culture. By the way, the, the answer is God is speaking to the culture, not the other direction. We're not listening to the culture. That's going to be kind of the message, except so that we'll understand where the word can address the, the error. We don't ask, we don't take a poll and say, what do you want? And then give it to you. 
That's what you do in marketing. That's what you do in business. You find out what the market wants and then you provide it. And that makes you wealthy. And I like that. I like that um, Hershey's chocolate. Let me go there. It's Christmas time. I like that Hershey's chocolate has done well. Did you know that Ms. Milton Hershey was a Christian? Did you know that he started his uh, chocolate endeavors after a failed caramel run? Didn't work out with the big dairy thing out in Hershey, out in Pennsylvania, which is now Hershey. And, uh, and so they, uh, tr they added milk to chocolate in a long story. But what else they did was they uh, built an orphanage. And they fed and, and trained and educated hundreds of children over the years. And in the Great Depression, one of the great interesting success stories is that Hershey did well through the Depression. I mean, I love the fact that you provide what people want and they buy it. And you become wealthy by providing what they want. And what Hershey's money did, what all that money through the wars, the Hershey had big government contracts to feed the, the troops, you know, super, super duper uh, fat and sugar filled um, survival Hershey bars. What they did with all the success that they had was they poured it into the lives of children for the sake of the gospel. They taught them a trade. And even today, even though the culture has moved on and all the great institutions fail and falter as they leave the word of God, Hershey's school still exists. And they're spending hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars per year per student in this institution, which was founded as an evangelical work, a Bible-believing work of somebody that was seeking to advance the gospel and make disciples. Well, I love the market, and I love the stories of the great uh, Christians who in business did well in American history. We don't hear about them very often because we hear about how evil all the moneymakers are. I could also take you to Longview, Texas, where I'm from, and Letourneau University. And R.G. Letourneau, who invented basically the bulldozer and thereby the entire interstate system who at one point decided with his wife, we don't really need more than the hundreds of millions of dollars that we have. And since billions are coming in on the horizon for all that uh, God has blessed us with through this, inventive, in the, this inventiveness, let's tithe 90% as an example. So everyone else is tithing 10%. RG tithes 90%. And that's why you have Laterno University, still a Christian institution where they pray before every class. And it's one of the most, uh, the paramount aerospace schools for aerospace engineering in the world. I love the market, but we're not here as believers in Christ to be in the marketplace of ideas where we ask, what does the world want to hear? And then we package it for them in a package with a bow that they'll like and give it to them. That's not our call. That's not our responsibility. And we need to make that very clear. Our job, as Paul is going to tell Timothy, is to preach the word in season and out of season. So let's dig into it a little bit in the original and we'll apply it as we go. Paul's solemn charge in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, he says, dia marturomai. And that's a word that Paul uses a number of times, and it has an emphatic maker, a dia, on the front of it. And then martureo means to bear witness. And when you put these two things together in the idiom of Paul's day, it can mean I solemnly charge you. And it's, but it's, it carries that there's a witness. There are others watching and it's like a public charge. So there's a testimony involved in the solemn charge. And so he says, I solemnly charge you. And then he tells you in what context before God and the Lord Jesus. I solemnly charge you before God and the Lord Jesus, he says. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is about mellow. He is 
soon to and it's coming soon it's 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 on the verge that's the way you think of this word and we say paul you're writing in the 60s a.d we're headed to the 2060s a.d this is 2000 years ago 30 years from now 40 years from now that's pulpit math we'll be in the 2060s it'll be really people can say paul was saying this 2000 years ago now we have to say it was like 1980 years ago seven 1970 years ago He says he's about to judge the living and the dead. He's about to establish the kingdom according to his appearing and his kingdom, Paul says. This is the basis of me making my charge. Now, when we just read through, if you're like me, you might not notice that Paul's entire focus is eschatological. It's end times. But this is the basis of the charge. And we don't really have the charge of preach the word until verse 2, but we have the basis for it in verse 1. Now, here's the way to think about the mission of the gospel. The real audience for your work is God. The real witness of what you're testifying to is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The power in which you're doing it is the Holy Spirit. And it's in light of the coming kingdom of Christ. So yes, you're talking to the humans, but you're talking to the humans in a context where court is in session, the Supreme Court of Heaven, the books are open, and the Spirit of God is either bringing conviction or he's not. The person's heart is open to what you're saying or it's not, but it's in the presence of God that we're making this solemn responsibility. And that's the way to live your life. And that's the answer. That's the antidote to the worry that we have that the world doesn't want to hear what we have to say. It's not a popular message. You know, it's not um, your best life now type language where the entire motivation of the sermon from the the guy that, that gives you your best life now the whole motivation is that you feel good or that you have pleasure or that you, you get blessed or something. And, and that's not what the Bible is even talking about. See, that's, that's a message that to, uh, to the world seems relevant. And that's a world that is irrelevant to the God with whom we have to deal. The question isn't, is the message relevant to man? The question is man in his openness to God relevant to the creator. It isn't that you know God so much as that he knows you. He knows those who are his. And so Paul makes this charge on the basis of the presence of God and the Son and the coming kingdom. So let's summarize the prophetic future and you, because everybody wants to talk about prophecy today. If you, um, if you traffic in prophecy websites or discernment ministries or, or things that are out there that in the world as, as our civilization crumbles, as good as evil more and more every day, they're coming out with good is evil and evil is good. Like Isaiah chapter five says, don't do that. If you're watching this thing destabilize, you're like, what's really going on? There are lots of people out there that'll tell you what's really going on. They know, even though they don't, they think they know, and they're going to tell you. I just came from a prophecy conference. The one that I think is the most scholarly of all prophecy conferences down in Dallas, the pre-trib research study group, pre-trib, pre-trib.org. It's fantastic. 
Everybody's focused on the pre-tribulation rapture, the nature of the coming of Jesus Christ, and what to expect in the, on the prophetic horizon. We're studying the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 25. We're studying 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and, chapter, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're looking at Revelation. I mean, the whole book of Revelation. We're emphasizing chapter 5. We're looking at all the things that we have on, in the New Testament prophetic horizon, and we're looking at the Old Testament testimonies of prophetic future that are still not fulfilled. And do you know what these prophecy hounds, these scholars are talking about, they are not talking about whether the, the, the vaccine is the mark of the beast. They're not talking about all the speculative weirdo stuff that you can find all day on YouTube. The Bible scholars and researchers that I'm studying with are talking about how our hope is not in the future of the United States, and it never has been. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's more important than our citizenship on earth and our stewardship here as American Christians is our, is our citizenship in heaven and the coming kingdom of our Lord with which we're, we will rule with him. Like that's the focus. And I was like, that's exactly what we need to be telling people. Yes, you are losing your constitutional republic right now before our eyes. We're watching it go away. And I want to stop it. I do want to stop it. But do you know why you're losing your constitutional republic? Because it is a government of the people. And the people of the constitutional republic are not into self-government. That's the problem. It's a great method of government if the people can self-govern. But we can't. prophetic future has a distinct purpose in your life and mine, but it isn't to do newspaper exegesis and to speculate about who the antichrist is or when is Jesus coming back? He's coming back right now. So get ready. That's the new Testament. He's about to come and judge the living and the dead. So what can I tell you about the prophetic future and you in eight points? First, Paul's exhortation of preaching the word is based on eschatology. It's in light of the coming kingdom that you and I serve and making disciples. It's based on eschatology. Love it. Become a scholar of eschatology because it's God's revelation of himself to us. The book of Revelation is not about the end of the world so much as the revelation of Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. Because at the end of the book of Revelation, you don't have the end. You have the end of the beginning. The new heavens and new earth is forever and ever and ever. And the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ he will reign forever and ever. So Paul's exhortation is eschatological. Second, whoa. The end, amen. Let's go home. <laughs> if I were in Texas, I'd say, let's go to Luby's. All right. That's a cafeteria that used to be in Texas. All right. Christians, secondly, must look out and up instead of down and in. The, 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 the reason you go do the work, Timothy, is because of the coming kingdom of Christ. You're looking at what's coming. You're not looking at, well, I just, uh, you know, I got in trouble with the elders or whatever, or something happened that sidelined me or they really embarrassed me publicly. I think there was probably some sort of public embarrassment that happened to Timothy where he said, well, I could just never speak to these people again in Ephesus. Paul doesn't say, they're there, Timothy. Let's go try you out in Colossae. He says, get up. Suffer hardship with me is how he'll conclude this little message right before telling you that he's about to die. That's right. Second Corinthians, uh, second uh, Timothy two or four, uh, sorry, six through eight is about Paul and his impending death. So, Hey, time is short for all of us. So let's get at it. Timothy Christians have to look up and out instead of down 
oh, this hurts. This, this, the circumstance I'm in is really bad. Or in, I really feel bad about my circumstance. Great. The truth is you feel bad. That's not all the truth. There's better truth for you to focus on. Yes, yeah, our bad feelings are bad. And the truth is that they feel bad, but that isn't all that there is to the truth. That's all sometimes we feel that we want to look at. Look at the coming of Christ. Look at what is guaranteed for your future. And do a little, take, take your temperature a little bit. Take your prophetic future temperature. And what I mean is, ask yourself if you have reason right now in your, in your trouble to rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I can testify to you that at many times throughout any given day of my life, I can say absolutely not. I don't have any joy inexpressible and full of glory right now. And that's a good moment for me to say, what is wrong with me? What has happened? Where is my focus? And the answer is, if you're looking at darkness, darkness. If the light that's in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Let's seek the kingdom and the things uh, above. And then you will be illuminated. Third, our worldview, the way we look at life, depends on ancient texts written by distant people in time, space, and culture. You with me? I believe that God has revealed himself through the scriptures, and that's old stuff. But notice that we're talking about the future. We're going to the old materials, the old written things that are given by inspiration of the Spirit, so that we can look to what hasn't even happened yet. And notice the way the culture thinks of the old things. Well, those aren't electronic. There's no transistors in those things. Actually, the kids don't even know what a transistor is. The billions and billions of transistors that basically make the lifestyle that we live today. Nobody knows about that. Anyway, the, the ancient text tells you word by word, thought by thought, thought by thought, how to think about the future. And nothing we do in the modern world is going to change its effectiveness. And fourth... Our worldview must focus on what's coming in the future. So that, that's, a, that's a, a, a little bit of a difficult thing for some people to swallow. That I'm looking at ancient texts written by people that had no idea about electricity. They basically lived in a perpetual camp out. You ever been camping? That's how they lived. There's no drywall. There's no sheetrock. There's no insulation. There's no electricity. You know, the kinds of things. Like if you lived in a house, if your house was like those houses back then, you'd be living, basically people would think you were homeless today. You'll be living in a shell of a house and camping out in a hard stand building. That's what these people were, how they lived. And that's ancient and strange and, and far removed from us. And so in our great sophistication over the last 120 years or so, we think that we're completely disconnected from these campers. But the truth is that by inspiration of the Spirit of God, the Apostle John knew exactly what's coming. The Apostle Paul knows what's coming. And so we have to have an eschatological worldview based on the ancient text. And fifth, by God's design, we do not know when Jesus is coming back. He says, by the soon coming of Christ, I'm making my appeal. And by God's design, you don't know when that is, how soon. So far, soon includes 2,000 years, 1,970 years. You with me? How long is it going to be, Lord? How long, O oh Lord? The Lord's like, it's not as long for me as it must seem to you. He also generally has one word for us when we think it's taken too long. In 2 Peter 3, the summary paraphrase I would make is relax. It's coming when it's coming, and you need to trust him till it does. And the reason that he hasn't ended things yet is because he's patient toward you, because he doesn't want any to perish but all to come to repentance. 
See, if God had come back when the people in the 1800s were saying, Lord, save us, deliver us from this horrible onslaught of Sherman burning all our farms down in the south. Save us from this. Lord Jesus, come back before he completely destroys our entire economy and, and, and all our farms are burned. Wait, I'm talking to New England. I'm sorry. When those people were making those prayers that Jesus would come back and save them from what they thought was a complete end of their world, do you not understand that if their prayers had been answered for Jesus to come back, then you and I would not have the privilege of ruling with Christ in his coming kingdom. But see, God had you in mind, and so he's making more of us. And when he's done, when he's done with that project of building the church, he will come. And God knows when that will be. And there's nothing you and I can do to change his timing. There's nothing. Oh, I didn't evangelize today. Maybe I'm making the kingdom wait longer. You're not. But you and I, by God's grace and his sovereign will, have the privilege of being part of his project. And that's what Peter or Timothy is being encouraged to do. We do know that every day it's sooner than the day before. Boy, are we getting close. Because people 30 years ago thought it must be soon. 1948, more than 30 years ago, 1948, they said, this is prophetic significance. Israel is in the land. And some said, yeah, but uh, uh, unbelief. They're in the land in unbelief. That's right. In Isaiah chapter 11, the Lord Jesus will call them back a second time. There will be a regathering in belief and there will be apparently this regathering in unbelief. And so, yeah, there's prophetic significance. I mean, it must be soon. Well, probably it's coming tonight. Just assume it. Your, your chance to suffer for him is shorter than you think. And that's the way eschatology helps you as you stand up in the mission. Seventh, we live in a constant state of prophetic contingency. Are you happy with that? I'm not from time to time. I want closure. Can I please have a date? Put it on the calendar. I'll backwards plan. I'll sequence my week or however long I get. And I'll know it's coming. That's not how it works. Whether you're dying or whether you're going to go up in the rapture with the church um, as those who are alive on the earth. I mean, we're all going when, when the Lord comes for us. But whether you go out by physical death or rapture, you don't know how long you have. Well, the doctor said, I have so many. The doctor doesn't know for sure how many days you've got. What you know from Jesus in Matthew 6 is you have today. So you live in a constant state of prophetic contingency. And moms and dads, boys and girls, we need to embrace it. We need to love it because that's how God has set us up. You know what? I'm not in control of tomorrow. I'm not in control of my five-year plan. I mean, I make a plan as unto the Lord, but it's always contingent. If the Lord wills, this is what we'll do. And that's how we have to live. And that's why Paul says in, in light of the coming kingdom. So eighth, as sure as the kingdom is coming, we must be on mission is Paul's exhortation to Timothy. As sure as the kingdom is coming, we must be on mission. Now let's be honest with ourselves. Through our daily walk, how often do we give a moment's thought to the fact that eternity is long, this life is short, and my destiny is to rule with Christ? Do we really live in light of that truth? Because the Lord Jesus, as your example, as your pioneer in Hebrews chapter 12, he endured the cross, despising the shame because he was looking at the joy that was set before him. Beloved, we need to be focused on what's coming as we're focused on Jesus Christ. Keep, keep on seeking things above where Christ is at the right hand of the Father. So we have five great commands in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Five great commands. I thought there was only one command. 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word. But actually, if you read it in Greek, there are four commands, four imperatives that Paul issues. Preach the word. And I put a period after each one because it's a complete sentence. 
And by the way, there is no punctuation in the original. All these punctuation marks that they've given us are, uh, are like editorial suggestions. So you just can't get away from people messing with the Bible. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. All aorist imperatives. Reprove. Rebuke. Exhort with all long suffering and teaching. You know, we talked about reproof and rebuke and exhortation stuff in 2 Timothy 3.16, talking about what the scriptures are, that they're profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction. What is the difference between reproving someone and rebuking someone? And I'm not sure that anybody really has a good answer for that. We have two different Greek words, and they mean bring a negative message to somebody that needs to make a correction. So we get two correction words here, reprove and rebuke. Now you might say, no, no, in English, Reprove has got this nuance and rebuke has this nuance. I'm talking about the Greek words. The Greek words, when you look them up in the lexicon, just for example, lexicon isn't necessarily the answer, but the best lexicon will use the same English words for both of these. So here's what I've got that I'm absolutely certain of. Timothy, you have to tell people something they don't want to hear. And it's so important that I say it. I'm going to say two different synonyms that say the same idea. You're going to correct people. I don't want to do that. Lord Jesus, just come get me. I opt out. I bow out. I don't want to be part of this correct everybody ministry. I'm, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Right? Timothy, that's your job. Because the word of God stands opposed to the rebellion of man. And I'm sending you to deal with men. And they're in rebellion against him. And everybody needs correction. Yay, even you. Even me. Do you appreciate, beloved Christian brothers and sisters, do you appreciate correction when you get it? I mean, in the long run. I didn't say it felt good in the moment. I mean, when you come to realize I was going this way and I was supposed to go that way. When you have someone say, hey, go this way. Aren't you glad that you're going to eventually get to the party? Men, there you were before GPSs. You were driving. She was trying to manage the map, perhaps. Give me that map. Let me see that. I've got it. I've got it. Take a left up here. How far? I don't know. It's just a little far. It's just a little ways up here. And then two hours later, you're on the cell phone. Because it is cell phones, but no GPSs yet. Mom and dad were lost. He, yeah, he doesn't know, we don't know where we are. Don't tell him we're lost. Just say we're, we're running late. Aren't you glad when you do get to the party, even if gentlemen, even if she had to tell you, I told you it's that way. Okay, thank you. I'll, I'll go that way. Right? I mean, we want to be corrected if we're going the wrong way. The problem is we don't want to ever admit we're going the wrong way. I have to overcome myself. In that situation where I'm driving and she's right about navigation, the problem is me and dealing with me. And it's all in here in my, in my head. We don't want to be corrected because we don't want to find out that we're wrong. But if you thought about it for just a second, just be a little utilitarian. You do want to get to the party. You do want to go cash your paycheck. You do want to get the good outcome. So actually, if you're on the wrong track, you want to be corrected. But here's the problem. You want to be corrected consistently. I want consistent correction. I don't want to be told, hey, turn left today. And then tomorrow, like, no, today we're going right. 
I want consistent rebuke. I want consistent reproof. I want somebody that really knows. Because honestly, if you get your correction and rebuking from daytime television or from self-help books or whatever, well, this guy says do it this way, and this gal says do it that way. And I don't know what to do. I mean, I was reading this book, and we started living life this way, and I'm reading book this, this way. Actually, God is very consistent. It's not about you. It's about him. That's like lesson one. It's not about getting your way. It's about God getting his way through you. It's not about you enjoying yourself so much as you enjoying God, right? See what I mean? It's, these are the consistent answers. And do we not need to hear them consistently? But that's what Timothy is supposed to do. Timothy, you went in there and said something they didn't like and they got after you about it. You did the right thing and you got a bad outcome. They smacked you in the face. That's what we get. Do you remember Paul and Lystra? Do you remember how they stoned him to death? Probably in Timothy's hometown. They stoned Paul, I believe it's Acts 13, and they left him for dead. And the disciples are standing around. They don't have time to say anything before Paul miraculously gets up and they go into the town and have a bite. Timothy, it's going to hurt. And that's where the passage is taking us. In verse 3, we have a prediction. It's a near-term prediction, I contend, because he says the people you're speaking to, they will not stand for a time will come when this sound teaching, they will not endure these people, whoever these people are, they will not stand for or sit forth. They won't hear what you have to say. Now he is not saying, Oh, in the big apostasy at the end, people are going to listen to the word anymore. He's saying, Timothy, this will be your experience. I believe now Paul does have a, a look at a future time. We've already seen in, in first second Timothy and first Timothy of, of a general like worsening of mankind. But I think he's telling Timothy, you, Timothy, you need to recognize that whether they're listening to you or not, you have something you need to say to them. So the time's coming when this sound teaching, they will not endure. Now, again, it could be he's talking about the big future falling away thing. But I think here he's saying you just need to know your audience is going to get itching ears. And you can't care. You can't worry about it. See, there's an initiation and a response. We are either the nail and the word of God is the hammer or we're not doing God's construction project. We're either receiving from God what he says or we're not part of his purpose and his plan. He's the initiation. His word is the standard and we need to adjust to it. And that's what we're doing here at Preston City Bible Church. But according to their own epithumia, we usually translate that lust. Now it could mean softened to desire, but this is a negative context of rebellion against God. I would translate it lusts. The, the, the tendencies they have for what they want. According to their own desires, lusts, leanings. For they themselves, they will accumulate teachers. I'm sorry, for themselves, they'll accumulate teachers. The subject is they themselves. The verb is to add to or accumulate. And the object is teachers. They're going to add teachers to themselves. You could see the lineup on TBN. Right? Everybody whose message is do what God says so that you get prosperity. This is what people want to hear. It's the itching ears. It's what people want to hear. I have a list of people come to me and talk to me offline that I would tell you, don't ever read them. Do not ever read what they say 
if you want to walk with God according to his word, because they're absorbing what the world wants. They're trying to mix it together with what God said and give you some sort of Frankenstein product that God's word doesn't, doesn't suggest. And it sounds good and it might sound authoritative and they are gifted communicators and the spiritual gifts of communication are not interpretive gifts. They're communicative gifts. And that's why men who will teach false things, Paul calls them savage wolves that don't spare the flock in, in Acts chapter 20. Some pastors will name names. There just isn't enough time to name all the names. And I don't think we need to. You could see it. The profile is the people that say, what does the world want? What sounds good to them? Go find a way for the Bible to give them what they want. According to their own lust, for, they, for themselves they'll accumulate teachers because they have itching ears. I've interpreted the participle to be causal. You're like, it's 12 o'clock, pastor. We don't care about the participle. They'll have itching ears. We can't go by the culture to know what to say to it is the point. You cannot go by the culture to know what to say to it, except in the sense that you you're fluent in their language, so you know how to speak the truth in that language. That's a dance that's a dangerous dance to, to, to do. Second, we must maintain the initiative with the word of God, because regardless of the cultural response to it, we need to speak it authoritatively. We have to maintain that initiative and speak with authority what God has said. Now, you're going to go witness to someone. You're not going to be strident like I'm being with you today. And hopefully this is encouraging to you. My stridency, my energy, my passion for this. And hopefully it'll, it'll wear off on you as much as it should. But here's the point. You can't go to someone and say, here's how it is. I'll say that to you. Here's what you need to do with people. Jesus died for my sins and saved me. And I've never, I've never looked away. I've never turned my back on the one who has done everything for me. You need to bear witness for Jesus Christ to people that don't have him. And the way you bear witness, the most effective way probably in our culture is to say what Jesus did for you. Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead and he saved me from all my sins. And I'm a broken, flawed person, but Jesus saved me. Just tell them how you have eternal life. And then you can personalize it for them. And he died for your sins too. And some theologians can't say that because they're more theologically oriented and philosophical than biblical. But you can get it out of 1 John 2, too. He died for the sins of the world. He died for your sins, too. He paid the penalty that God requires for your sin. And you can trust in him and have eternal life right now. You can say those words. I'm not saying that the conversation is going to go well. And I'm not saying that you need to be clumsy in your conversation. But the school bus is stopping by. And the doors are opening. And people aren't coming out to the school bus. And it's going to the next street. And I don't know how many laps we get, but I think, it's, I think we're probably on the last lap. This is not the preaching of conjectures or pet ideas. It's really important. Pastors are being criticized by discernment ministry people all the time. And they should be. If the pastors aren't preaching the word of God, then they need to be rebuked for not doing what Paul said. But Paul doesn't say preach the discernment ministry's conjectures. It says preach the word. And the word doesn't tell you the nature of the COVID vaccine. The word doesn't tell you whether there's graphene in it so that you can become a part of the future 6G internet or whatever is the next thing. It doesn't say these things. It doesn't talk about these things. And for people to try to go from Revelation 13 to the COVID vaccine is actually 
a, a, a slander of the scriptures. It's a destruction of what God has actually said. In other words, discernment is just that. When you have God's word clearly taught, you should be able to bring to bear on whatever the situation is in life, the, the circumstance. So let's talk about vaccinations, Pastor Dave. I think that this is a matter of your conscience and is a necessary thing for you to study. And I think it's very ill-advised for you to listen to mainstream media for anything. I think you should do your own work and you should be very careful about broad claims that are made by people that you don't really know where they're coming from because the world is full of deception. And so you need to be discerning and you need to be careful and you need to do what you do as a matter of conscience. And you need to respect one another's conscience. And it's a doubtful thing, this weird thing we're living in. Here's where I am dogmatically about vaccinations in our culture. You ready? Here, I'm going to come down on it. I'm going to drop the hammer. You ready? It's, you're going to, some of you are going to say I'm a squish for saying it. When you start to violate individuals' conscience with the sovereignty over our own bodies as we live our lives for God, my body is his, I'm made in his image, not the government's image. When you start to mandate against my conscience, you start to undo our constitution. And that's really where the issue is that I can dogmatically say, again, the Bible talks to me about conscience, bearing God's image, all these things. It doesn't tell me what is the chemical makeup of the Moderna vaccine. The Moderna vaccine. And hey, go, go find the discernment people that are doing the research and see if you can trust them. But for those people to then say, well, all this translation you're doing of Greek and Hebrew and to teach people God's word, that's not really getting it because it's not telling them the secret knowledge that I have about the vaccine. That's just arrogance and it's a satanic deception that we've been deceived into thinking the little discernment ministry about the little political, technological, satanic thing that's going on today is more important than God's word transforming our hearts to be more and more like the character of Christ in a world that desperately needs every one of you to tell your neighbor what Jesus did for you when you first trusted in him. In other words, I think we need to keep our finger in the Bible. And that means that I will preach about conscience. I'll preach about your responsibility as God's image bearer. I will preach about your responsibility to love one another. And what you do, you do in love for God as you're responding to him in loving one another. Fifth, it's because of this humanistic competition that Timothy is to preach the word in and out of season. The humanistic competition is all the stuff that people know and speculate and conjecture about. And this is the new thing to say. I think the red and blue little thing we do, the little merry-go-round of red and blue in this culture is like this. What I mean is um, you can have all the halls of government in one political party and they still can't get you back to constitutionalism. I, I, think it's, I think it's a game. I think, that I think we're being duped into thinking this is the issue. This is not the issue. The issue is what do you do with the gospel of Jesus Christ? So the audience, and by the way, I'm saying you are losing your republic and your freedoms and they're, they're trying to destroy everything about your civilization economically and otherwise right now. I think we're losing out. But I expect us to because people have turned their backs on God. They're going to get what they're asked for and they're going to, they're going to what Minkin said it, I think. Um, Americans are going to get what they want, good and hard. In verse four, on the, on the one hand, away from the truth, these people will turn their ears, but on the other hand, to the myths, they'll turn aside. So they're turning away from truth to 
to myths, to things that aren't God's word. And so the real distinction, there's a lot of truth. There's a lot of, sorry, propositions being said, but there's what God said and there's what man teaches that God hasn't said. So what is truth? Pontius Pilate asked that question. Well, everyone's going to believe something. So how do you know? It's, it's a question of authority. And Paul's already said it. It's the word. Man cannot be the measure of truth or falsity of something. Why? Because we're easily deceived. Because two people have three opinions, as they say. You can't be the measure of what's the truth. Wait, I think it sounds better to say you can't handle the truth. But we can't be the measure of truth as ourselves. Well, that seems real to me. There's an entire cult that owns the Florida orange crop that will say, just feel in your heart and see if these things we've made up about Jesus are true. You're not the measure. We're not the measure of truth. We're so easily led and deceived. But I'm just certain that this is the way. Well, if it's God's word, then you're onto something. Who is to say what is the truth? Not David Rosling, not any of us. Who is to say? See, that's what Jesus does. It's like What I'm teaching isn't from me. It's from the Father. If I'm teaching my own words, then I'm, I'm lying because I've said it's only what the Father has told me to say. That's what we're doing. We're going back to what God has actually told us. And God has not occurred to you in your discernment ministry something that he didn't say in the Bible. That then now everybody's responsible for about the nature of whatever the political or technological circumstances. So who's to say what is the truth? And I hope you know that the answer is God. The Lord's church must proclaim God's word into a world that's deceived and turning aside to myths. We have to proclaim the truth and not care that they hate us for it. Paul portrays this sidestepping as inevitable. The world is going to reject what you have to say. I don't know if it was because that the, this road became more prominent than that road, but this church building was rotated 90 degrees in the first 40 or 50 years of its history. It used to face that way. And I think that they decided that this would be the main road. So we rotated the whole building to face the main road. Now, I wasn't part of the deliberations back then. I haven't seen records of it, but I've always wondered, were the people just so not interested in the Baptists that they started walking around the church? They said, okay, let's rotate it this way to face the main drag now. So that, I don't know. i just kidding. But, um, but it doesn't matter to us that we're not popular or that the message isn't well-received as long as it's God's message. It's got to be what God has said. But as for you, as we close, as, and thank you for your patience. It's been a long service. I really appreciate you being with me. As for you, Timothy, be sober in all things. It doesn't mean alcohol, but it can mean alcohol. It means serious because we're at war. Suffer hardship. He doesn't say you might suffer hardship. He says, do it. It's in the aorist imperative like the rest of these. Do, poieo, the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your service. Four closing commands that contrast Timothy with the Ephesian world that's going to reject Timothy. Be sober because we're at war. Suffer hardship because you are called to do so. Do the work of an evangelist because that's why we're here, because it's the message of the gospel. Fulfill your service because you're working for God in light of his coming kingdom. Christian ministry will be painful. You must adopt a war footing. The war is on and it isn't our choice. We just have to run the race set before us. The truth is always under attack. And you have to speak the truth, 
even though they are deceived and believe it's false. And this will be unpopular when the truth is out of season. You tell me, beloved, is the truth out of season in the time in which we live? Today, the Christmas classic, all I want for Christmas is you. That's what Christmas means to me. Where are you, Christmas? <laughs> I don't want a lot for Christmas. Okay? You are all I'm asking for. Is that like not a compliment? I don't want a lot for Christmas, just, just you. Anyway. It's out of season. And I'm out of time. But praise God that we could assemble together in fellowship around this fact of Paul's swan song that Timothy and we have to preach to a world that doesn't want to hear it. Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel and that just as the days of Noah where the entire world is rebelling against you, just as the days of Babel where the entire world is rebelling against you today, we see the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing. And we praise you for our so great salvation Thank you for the arrangement in each one of our lives where the gospel was made clear to us just at a moment when we were being convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment. Thank you that we had the privilege of understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ and of trusted alone in him for salvation. And Father, we ask on behalf of anyone who may be in the hearing of my voice that the Spirit would do that convicting work on them if they haven't trusted in Jesus, that the issue would become very clear to them that it is only Jesus as a substitute for our sins, because that's really the issue. We're separated from you and your righteousness must be imputed to us. We cannot accomplish it on our own. Father, help our loved ones come to know Jesus Christ even this year as we represent him to them. We pray it in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Come up, Josh, and sing us home. Oh, by the way, they told me that there's a rehearsal at 12.15. It'll be at about 12.15, uh, plus or minus a couple minutes. If you could uh, stand and turn in your hymnals to number 178.
I guess I'll go ahead and close this in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day that we have today. Thank you for the Christmas season and just this time that we have to celebrate your birth, celebrate you sending your only begotten son to come here to earth, fully man and fully God, and to sacrifice himself to save sinners like us. We pray that as we go out this week and for the rest of this Christmas season that we would remember what we're actually celebrating. It's not Santa Claus and just giving each other presents, but it is celebrating your gift of love and the greatest sacrifice that has ever been made. We thank you and praise you for all of your wonderful gifts to us. We ask this in your name. Amen.